We're starting a, a series through the book of 1 Timothy today, and we're calling the series In This House because 1 Timothy in many ways revolves around the whole idea of house rules. How many of you in your household have some house rules? All right, when we think of house rules, sometimes we can think of sort of actual rules, actual things that you're allowed to do or not allowed to do within the house. But a lot of times when we talk about the concept of house rules, it's not so much about a list of things that we're allowed to do or not allowed to do. It's more about the idea of saying within this house or within this household, within this family, here are the values that drive us. And about, uh, I don't know if it was three or four years ago, um, Karina this, uh, came to me with the idea of what if we chose five words that were sort of the house rules for our family? That we said, these are the five things that we value, and, and we did, and it's been really, really beneficial, and I won't walk you through all five of them. Um, the first one is about worship, because that is the center of who we are created to be, but one of these five has become something, the, the one that we've used the most, the one that we've talked about the most, and, uh, and the fifth one is that we explore, and the idea behind this, it's especially helpful for our family, because we're all kind of homebodies, We all kind of like the familiar. And so we've tried to build into our household the idea that we explore, we try new things, we get out of our comfort zone. So if we're taking the kids to a museum and they're not super excited about it, we say, hey, we explore. This is what we do. We try new stuff. Um, and, And as important as it's been for the kids, I've noticed that it's been probably just as important for me. I really like the familiar. And so I find myself continually reminding myself in the different ways that I do things, we explore. So if a bunch of guys at the church say, hey, for lunch, we're going to go over to this guy's house and throw axes at a board. (laughs) And I think, well, that's unfamiliar, but hey, (laughs) we explore. Let's try it out. Um, And one about a year ago, Pastor Troy said we're we're looking to build this connection over in Kenya, and he was going to go on a trip, and he wanted to bring one other pastor along, and uh, immediately what I thought about is how much I like my home. (laughs) But then I thought, I know the impact that God's brought on my life and the good things that have happened every time I've gone overseas and got to be part of what God's doing overseas. And so I went to Troy and said, if you want to take me, I'll go. And the reason I did that is because... We explore. When I was on the go team in Haiti and we all sat down to the final dinner at a restaurant before we were going to come home and they said the real delicacy over here is goats. I thought, some of you are like, this is where it runs out. No, this is not where it runs out. I thought, we explore. Let's try the goat. Let's go for it. It's been a thing. And, And here's the deal with this. The reason why I'm talking about this is because the idea here is if the only time I was thinking about whether I wanted to go with the familiar or go with something new was right at the moment. I would choose the familiar every time. But we have a house rule that says we explore. And that means in advance, we have decided this is a value that we believe God has led us to that bears fruit. And that decision in advance guides me when I'm in the moment. That's what house rules do. And the reason that we're talking about this is that the book of 1 Timothy, in essence, is the house rules for the church. Now, let me just be really clear. When I say the church right now, 
and throughout the rest of this message, please try hard not to think of a building. Please try hard not to think of an organization. The church is the people of God. It's the believers. Within the church, there are house rules. In fact, I I love this. Not every book of the Bible does the author tell you, this is why I'm writing. But I love when they do because it's really, really helpful for us. And in 1 Timothy, Paul tells, in the middle of the book, he tells Timothy, this is why I'm writing. I'll put it up here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He says to Timothy, I'm hoping to come. Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus and Paul's away. He's saying, I want to come, but if I can't come, here's why I'm writing this letter. I want you to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I want you to know the house rules of the church. And just as in your family, you might say, in this family we explore, we get to say, in this house, in the family of God, in the household of God, Here's how we conduct ourselves. And so each week throughout this series, we're going to be talking about a sort of a different house rule, a different value that guides us. And I'll tell you the one that we're going to start with. The one that we're going to start with this week, as it's going to be the first two verses and also kind of an overview of the book, is that in this house, we love the church. Now, Admittedly, this can be kind of self-referential here. You're like, all right, I came to church and the message is going to be about how we're supposed to love the church. You might say, all right, I'm the already convinced. I'm here. Um, he, here's what I want. I want to invite you right now to enter into this time with me and, and to think of yourself maybe in one of two camps here. Let's say you all are here, so you have some connection to the church. Some of you are here and here's your connection to the church. Your connection to the church is that you find the church useful. You find the church useful in the sense that you're going through something right now and you just know that you need help. You need inspiration or you need a support group or you need some good teaching. You you need something. You find the church useful. And at times that you don't find the church useful, you kind of beg off. But right now you're in a mode where you're saying, well, why I am around the church because I find the church useful. And what I want to invite you to is to reframe how you're thinking about it. If you're coming in this morning and thinking, I'm part of the church because I find the church useful, God is going to call you to something more profound than that. God is going to call you not to be involved in the church simply because it fits your desires now, but because God is doing something powerful through his people that he's calling you to be a part of. Now, there's some others of you here that you'd say, no, I, I've gone beyond that. I've gone beyond the mode of where I just show up if I want to. You're really involved. You're serving in different places. You're in a small group, in one of our life groups. You're really, you're, you're sort of the model citizens for what we call people to do. You are very involved. And so if you're in that mode, here's what I want to invite you to during this message. You may be doing many of the things that God has called you to, but there's also the possibility that you've lost sight of why you're doing it. That you're doing it out of habit, which in many ways is good. You've developed a good habit. 
by your going through the motions and just looking at churches. This is just kind of part of our lives. This is part of what we do. We show up on Sundays, we serve with the kids, we go to our life group. That's just sort of what we do. And you've lost sight of the awe-inspiring significance of what the church is. The household of God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And it's trendy, even amongst Christians, to kind of rag on the church a little bit. Like, all right, we're into Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus, and we're into spirituality, but the church has its problems, and the church has its issues, and we kind of downgrade and run down the church. And I'm not going to claim for a second that the church doesn't have issues and flaws, but I want to invite you to think of those issues and flaws as the issues and flaws that we share, not the issues and flaws of something that's separate than you. Let me tell you some things about Jesus' connection to the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus is the good shepherd and the church is his flock. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride that he died for. So if you're into Jesus, you're like, I really care about Jesus. What you need to know is that love for Jesus and love for the church are inseparable. The church is his flock, the church is his bride, the church is his people who he cares deeply for. So I want to invite you, whether you're coming in and saying, well, I kind of see the church is useful and that's why I'm here. Or if you're saying, no, I'm heavily involved, but it's possible I've forgotten why I'm doing this. We're going to walk through just the first two verses and then also talk about some other things in the book. And we're going to talk about two key reasons why our first house rule is that we love the church. And the first one's going to be in verse 1, and the first one's going to be in verse 2. We're just going to use chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 as home base for us throughout this, and then I'll allude to some things throughout, and we'll find out how many. We'll see. I, I have big ambitions, but we'll, we'll see if I live up to those. Um, so the first one is this. We love the church because of its message. And what we get in verse 1 is just an introduction to the book where we also get the Apostle Paul hinting at what the message of the church is all about. So he starts this letter, as he starts most of his letters, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then look at what he says immediately, by the command of God. Now we'll talk a little bit more about who Paul is. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, and he's also a major character in the book of Acts. He's a major person within the New Testament. And he's an apostle, which means that he's somebody who was sent. But he doesn't just say, I'm going around and starting churches and proclaiming a message and making disciples because I think it's a good idea. He says, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Paul says, I'm a part of something much bigger than me. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see his description of God in these opening words. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior. This is the foundation of what he wants to remind Timothy about. I'm sent out, I'm planting churches, I'm getting into shipwrecks, I'm getting thrown in prison, I'm proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues, I'm going all over and doing this. By the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And what I want us to be reminded of this morning is that one of the reasons why we love the church 
and not just as consumers and not just because we find the church useful at different points in our lives. We love the church because of the message that the church proclaims. And the message that the church proclaims is that God is the Savior. More specifically, I want you to look at something that Paul says later on in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, which I think now I'm just going to use as the introduction to everything that I say after that. That's a great introduction. I'm about to say something. What I'm about to say is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is our message. I am sent out by the command of God, our Savior. And here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, I want to say something. I really want you to focus in on this. The the message that we have is the church of Jesus Christ. In many ways, you could say it's about many things. Um, you, You could say, well, it's about hope because it's about speaking hope into a hopeless world. You could say it's about forgiveness because it's talking about the forgiveness that we get in God through Jesus. And you could say it's about grace. Um, You could say it's about love. You could say it's about many things. But first and foremost, here's what I want you to hear. The message of the church is first and foremost a message about God. It's a message about the fact that God is the Savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And just look at what Paul says after that. Of whom I am the worst. And it's very tempting here to say, well, this just shows how humble Paul is. This just shows how much humility and you know what, the the more you grow in your love for Jesus, the more humble that you get. And even though you start off and, and then you grow and then you become less and less dominated by sin, here's Paul later on in his life looking at himself and humbly calling himself the worst sinner, even though Paul had to really know there were worse sinners out there at the time. What a humble guy Paul is to call himself the worst sinner. What I want you to know is Paul is not being humble here when he calls himself the worst sinner. He's calling himself the worst sinner because he really believes he is the ultimate test case of whether or not anyone can be saved by Jesus. In the verses before this, Paul does a little bit of autobiography. And he talks about the fact that he wasn't always a Christian. It's a time with the Apostle Paul where he not only didn't believe in Jesus, but he was the most passionate opponent of Jesus and of Christians who was on the planet. He was finding ways to throw Christians in prison because Paul was a Jewish man who had a passion for Judaism and he thought that Christians were blasphemers that they were saying untrue things about God, saying that Jesus was the son of God. He was ardently opposed to this. He was throwing people in prison. He was overseeing executions. And then God dramatically transitioned Paul's life. God dramatically rescued Paul and took him from being the most ardent opponent of Christianity to being its greatest mouthpiece. When Paul says, I was the worst. He's not just being humble. 
He's saying, I don't care what you did. I don't care what you said. I don't care what secret sin you have stashed away. None of you persecuted Christians with as much passion as I did. So none of you have sinned as badly as I have. Verse 16, he tells us why he's saying this. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I'm going to ask you a quick question and I'm not, you're not going to have to answer out loud. Um, the question is this, have you ever done something and after you've done it, at least a large part of you believe now that I've done this, God can never love me. Now that I've done this, God can never forgive me. Now that I've done this, God should be done with me. Many of us have things like that and they haunt us. And we kind of stow them away. Sometimes we try not to think about them. We don't talk to other people about them. We just try to stow them away, pretend they didn't happen because that's our only solution for this. Paul says, I was the worst sinner and you want to know why God saved me? God saved me so that none of you with your secret sins that you're so impressed with, that you think are so big that God can no longer love you, none of you can persist in thinking about that because you're going to look at Paul and say, well, if God could save him, God could save anyone. If God could forgive him, God could forgive every, anyone and everyone. Paul stands forth as an example of this message of salvation that God is proclaiming through him. And it's also a reminder that this message is different than the other messages in the world. Um, let, let me tell you a quick story. When I was, um, this was probably about 10 years ago, I was part of a church up in Oregon and I was tasked with kind of an odd situation where there was a woman who was a part of the church and she was just dealing with a, a deep kind of depression and discouragement. Now, not necessarily some sort of clinical depression, but she was just downhearted. And, and I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, but you could tell from her face. You just had to look at her and you could tell, this is a woman who just feels beaten down by life. She was about 55 years old. She looked about 10, 15 years older than that. She just looked tired. Never had a smile on her face. And as I got to know her, I got to know her in the context of, uh, I, I met with her along with another woman in the church and, and just kind of got to hear some of this woman's story. And the more of her story uh, I heard, the more I understood why she had this affect on her face. She not only had faced a lot of hard things in her life, um, which she had, but it wasn't the hard things she had faced that made her so discouraged. What made her so discouraged is that she had done things that she was ashamed of and she simply despised herself for it. You know, the, the internal guilt that we feel can take our life away a lot of times, a lot more than the external trials that we face. And this woman, she just despised herself. And, and you, as you're listening to this, you could look at that and say, well, she probably was overplaying her hand. Um, she had some things she had done that, that were pretty bad. Um, her husband had died by this point, but when her husband was, uh, was alive, she'd been unfaithful to him several times. And she was haunted by the adultery that she had committed. She despised herself for it. 
There was a point earlier on in her life where she had got pregnant and she had had an abortion and she was haunted by that, haunted by the killing of her unborn child. And you could just see by the look on her face, nothing was going to change this. Nothing was going to alter this. She had done wrong. She despised herself and that was going to be the rest of her life. And so what we ended up doing is several times we met together and most of what I did in these meetings that we had together for a half hour, 45 minutes is I just read scripture. I just read verses out of the Bible and what, what I was trying to do, so I was trying to get her to internalize, to personally embrace what God had done for her and that she was his child. She claimed to be a Christian, but just there was nothing about her that reflected the joy and the relief that comes through this. So I'd read passages of scripture and sometimes I'd comment on them a little bit. We met together and did this several times. And then I remember the day that we were meeting together and her face was utterly transformed. I'll just tell you, I I wish I could recreate it. I've never seen anything like it before where a human being went from the absolute depths and it written all over their posture to going to a moment of joy and beauty. It happened in an instant. She was looking down at the ground and she had her normal expression on her face. And I read, I I wish I remember what passage of scripture I read. I don't remember what it was. Otherwise I'd be like, let's do it right now and just fix everything. I don't remember because we just read lots of passages, but I read a passage and afterwards I looked to personalize it to her. And I said something along the lines of this. Um, When I say it, you're going to think it doesn't even sound that profound. And you're right, it didn't. It was just personalizing it to her. I said something along the lines of, do you know that when you pray, God is leaning forward, excited to hear from you? And in that moment, she turned from a woman who despised herself into a woman who truly believed that she was loved. It was one of the most profound things I've ever seen. And here's why I'm talking about this. Because our tactic could have been, this woman has come to us, she despises herself. We just need to convince her that what she did wasn't that bad. We could have tried that route. We could have said, you know, a lot of people commit adultery and maybe your husband was a bad guy. Maybe he deserved it. We could have tried to explain it away. We could have said, hey, there's a lot of people that think abortion isn't even wrong and that it's not even really a baby. So so just kind of go with them and just kind of ignore this whole thing. We could have taken that route. We could have said it's not that bad. We could have even said a lot of people have done worse, which would have been true. But instead, what we did is we trusted in the saving power of the message that has been entrusted to the church. And the saving message that has been entrusted to the church is not, God loves you. After all, you haven't done anything all that bad. The message is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And even if you're the worst sinner, you can still be saved. She was transformed because she knew God had seen her in her utter darkness and had received her as a daughter. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just save sinners with small sins? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm the worst one, so if he brought me in, he can bring you in. 
And before even going on, let me just say this. There may be some of you here that you have never embraced Jesus by faith. You've never experienced what I just described with that woman, where you've experienced the love of God transforming you. And if you haven't, I want to invite you today, there is new life in Jesus. As the church, we didn't invent this message, but as Paul said in chapter three, we are the pillar and the support of the truth. So every week and in all that we do, we uphold this message and we love the church because it has the only message that's transforming because it's the only message that tells us the truth about God's heart for us. We love the church because of its message. Verse two is gonna tell us we also love the church because of its mission, And verse two is when Paul then addresses Timothy. He says to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And and even the idea that Paul is writing to Timothy backs up the idea that there's a mission that the church is about. Paul is not simply saying, I was rescued and so now I'm gonna sit on my chair for the rest of my life and enjoy the fact that I was forgiven. Paul is on a mission. He's spreading the message and he's writing to Timothy because he wants the message to be spread further. The mission of the church, according to what he said in chapter three, the mission of the church is tied up in the idea that we put the gospel of Jesus on display through our words and through our actions. And he's writing to Timothy to do that. And let me just tell you specifically how he's going to outline throughout this letter. And and the theme through Paul is that the way that the gospel is put on display is that we display God's power through our weakness. The majesty of God, the power of God is put on display not because the church has political power or social savvy. The power of God is put on display through the weakness of the church. And just as Paul is probably the best example of somebody being dramatically converted and brought to new life, Timothy in many ways is a model example of how God works through unlikely people. If you've read the Old Testament, you see this theme come up again and again. God works and shows his power by working through unlikely people. He chooses Abraham from a family of idolaters and brings him out to start the new family. He chooses Jacob, who's a schemer and a sneak and a liar, and works through him. He works through Joseph, who's in prison for a good portion of his life. He works through Moses, who was a stuttering murderer. Look it up. Both are true. God works through unlikely people, and Timothy, in many ways, appears to have been a pretty unlikely person to be at the center of what God was doing. There are hints peppered throughout 1st and 2nd Timothy that Timothy was not a bold man like Paul was. That Timothy had to be dragged into the spotlight. That Timothy had to be prodded along to be bold and to take the initiative. This comes through even more clearly in the second letter to Timothy, where Paul says, all right, Timothy, I want you to stir up the gift that's inside of you because God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power. So Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's writing to this young man. He's saying, all right, I see your tendencies. I see that you tend towards anxiety. I see that you tend towards shrinking back. I want you to be bold. The Holy Spirit that God has given us doesn't lead us to fear. He leads us to power. 
And you see this peppered throughout. One of the, maybe the most famous verse um, in 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy 4.12, where he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And this again points towards the idea that Timothy seemed to have the spirit, seemed to have this personality where he wasn't too sure of himself. Any of you not too sure of yourselves? You can be greatly used by God just as Timothy was. In fact, here's my favorite part. And, and this, some of you will really love this. Um, there's a random verse that shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. If you have an open Bible, you can look there or you can just take my word for it. Here's what Paul says in, in chapter 5, verse 23. He says, Timothy, drink a little bit of wine for your stomach and for your frequent ailments. And some of you are like, I have a lot of questions from God about stuff that the Bible doesn't talk about. All that stuff didn't make the cut for what's in the Bible, but we get a verse telling Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach. Why is this in the Bible? Now, some of you are like, I'm glad this is in the Bible. (laughs) Thank Jesus. Finally, tonight I'm putting this into practice. Take the edge off. Now, I'm going to give you a hypothesis. Um, I I can't prove this, but I think it's a pretty good hypothesis of why this shows up in here. Um, So so first of all, I think this shows up in here because there's probably good reason to believe that Timothy was thinking, I got to be above reproach. I got to be a good model for my people. I got to be a good pastor. And so I'm just not going to drink any alcohol at all because people get trapped by alcohol, which there's pretty good reasoning there. Pretty good decision making if that's what Timothy was doing. But Paul says, Timothy, you would be better off drinking wine every once in a while to ease your stomach. Now, what emotional reaction ties us up in knots where we might need to take the edge off? Anxiety and fear. I think, and again, I can't prove this, I think Timothy was getting ulcers. I think Timothy was just overly wound up and Paul is saying, you know what? Not drinking any alcohol so that you set a good example. That's a good decision. But you know what? You need to just have a glass of wine every once in a while to ease up because you're wound so tight. This was Timothy. This is an unlikely man to be at the center of what God is doing. But you know what God does? He shows his power through our weakness. Aren't you glad that God works through people who are a work in progress? Here's Timothy, and he is not where Paul is. And yet God is still doing profound things in him because the mission of the church is to put the gospel on display. And God does that by showing his power in our weakness. And, and throughout, you're going to see this pepper up all throughout 1 Timothy. But let me just give, I'll try for at least one example of this. Chapter 2. If you have an open Bible, you can look at this, but but I'll just tell you, there's something that happens in chapter two where Paul speaks to men and then to women about how to conduct themselves when the church is gathered. So first he speaks to the men. And what he basically says to the men is, "When, when you gather together, I want you to lift up holy hands in prayer without quarreling and without anger. So here's the contrast that he says to men. He says, when you gather, I want you to come together in peaceful prayer instead of your quarrels. And I think what Paul is doing here with Timothy is Paul is telling him, I want you to to instruct men to trade in worldly masculinity for godly masculinity. And a lot of what it has to do to to be a man, there's this urge in us that we know that we are created to fight in some way. 
And, and it's a positive urge that God is, all right, we're supposed to fight, we're about, supposed to be about something. And Paul is saying, you know what, a lot of the ways we as men use this urge that we're supposed to fight is that somebody slighted us, and so when we come together at the church meeting, we're thinking about that. And you know what we're thinking about? We're thinking about the fact that no one treats me that way. I'm not going to let this guy get away with it. So if we're lifting up hands and holy hands in prayer, I'm not holding that guy's hand. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to tell him nobody treats me this way. And Paul says, I want men to come together and instead of fighting with each other over petty squabbles, I want them to fight for the purity of the faith. I want men to show real masculinity by fighting against their own petty anger rather than fighting against one another. And you know what, men, if you do that, if you choose the route of self-control and grace and mercy instead of one-upmanship, you will not get yourself a viral YouTube video showing how you destroyed somebody in three minutes. You won't get that because that's worldly power. Paul says to men, I want you to set aside worldly power and show what the world might perceive as weakness and to show that God's power is put on display when we practice his wisdom. And then he turns to the women, and and in a totally different way, he invites women to set aside worldly power for godly power. And this is the way he tells it with women. He says, all right, with women, you have a power that's very profound. And the power that's very profound that you have is that you're very good looking. And so you like to paint yourselves up, you like to look really pretty, you like to, you know, put on nice makeup and do your hair really nice. And what he says is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be more focused on showing the beauty of good works than on showing the beauty of good looks. And we all know that if you focus on showing the beauty of good works, you're not going to get your face on a magazine cover. You're going to be setting aside worldly power to entrust yourself to God's wisdom. He says to men and he says to women, you know what? This is the way the church functions. When we gather, we set aside all the wisdom of the world. We set aside the one-upmanship. We set aside the idea that we've got to show how powerful we are or how beautiful we are. We set those things aside because we are focused on showing the gospel of Jesus. And that gospel is shown when we are weak and yet God is strong. And let me say one more thing about this. There's a lot of fear in our country right now amongst Christians that the way things are going politically is that we will end up in a pretty tough position as Christians, which I'll just say, this could happen. We're very aware in the church leadership that we could end up losing our tax-exempt status if certain things go through. We're very aware of the idea that if certain hate speech things go through, we could end up in a perilous position with certain biblical positions that we take. We could end up in a position, it may not happen, but it could happen. We could end up in a position in our nation where we're not only losing out on favored status, but it's really tough to be a Christian, where maybe even there's overt persecution and there's a temptation for us to look at that and say, well, if that happens, it's all over. If that happens, it's all done. And what I want you to know is that the light of Jesus shines most brightly in the darkness. If it is hard to be a Christian in the United States, 
then the light of Jesus will shine more brightly when we cling to him at great cost to ourselves. I'm not saying I want this stuff to happen. I don't want this stuff to happen. But what I'm saying is God's power is put on display through weakness. And so we have the privilege of not being overwhelmed by the fear that we will lose worldly power. Because when we are weak, he is strong. We love the church as the people of God. And I, get a, I said at the beginning, some of you are here because the church is useful to you. And, and in many ways, I'd say, well, well I'm glad. I, I, I want the church. I want, I want our church to be a transforming agent. I want people to experience new life. I want people to experience friendships and community. I want people to experience good biblical teaching and, and solid God-honoring worship. I want all that to happen at this church. But if right now you're saying the church is useful to me, I want to invite you to reframe and to see yourself not as a consumer of the church, but as somebody who has the church as their primary identity. You are brought into the family of God, not as a consumer, but as somebody who's committed. And for those of you right now, for my brothers and sisters right now, that you're saying, well, I have been doing the thing. I have been leading the life group. I have been serving with kids. I've been participating. I've been doing all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. My invitation to you is this. My invitation is to look at all of those things and enter into the joy of realizing that the reason that you're doing those things is not merely good habits. The reason you're doing those things is because you are participating in the life-changing, absolutely transforming power of God going out to the church and to the world. You are a part of lives being changed. You're a part of light being shined into darkness. You're a part of people being transferred from those who despise themselves into those who recognize for the first time they are deeply loved by the God of the universe. Continue on, not just because you've got a good habit now. Continue on because what could you be involved in that's more significant than what God is doing through the church? As we think of ourselves as members of the church, it's good for us to, to pause and remember that the only reason that we're God's children, the only reason that we're the bride of Christ is because there was a great price that was paid to bring us into the family. And so what we get to do next is we get to celebrate communion together. And if you're going to be helping out with communion, you can head towards the back now. And when we celebrate communion, what we're celebrating is the idea that Jesus showed God's power and weakness in the ultimate way. Jesus laid down his life so that we could be forgiven. We celebrate the bread. We celebrate the broken body of Jesus. When we take the cup, we remember the shed blood of Jesus. We take time to remember that our identities have been changed because of what Jesus did on the cross. That when he willingly laid aside worldly power to take on weakness, everything was changed in that moment. So use this as a time to celebrate your new identity in the family of God through the price that was paid by Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to do this. Father, I pray for any person here who is haunted by their past, who's haunted by their present, who's haunted by things that they're convinced you can't and won't forgive. 
I pray that you renew them by the life-changing message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Father, I pray that you lead all of us to set aside the temporary things that distract us, to be all about the mission that you've called us to and to see more and more of the new life that you bring through Jesus. Father, be honored through this time right now and, and remind us of all that's been done to give us the privileges that we experience in you. In Jesus' name, amen.